I'm Jyothi Gupta and this is The Pulse. The FIFA World Cup 2022 in Qatar was played from November 20th to December 18th. The FIFA World Cup is widely regarded as football's greatest showpiece and this tournament played in 2022 was the first World Cup event held in the Arab world. At an estimated cost of about 220 billion dollars, it is the most expensive World Cup held to date. Though Qatari officials dispute the final figure, the FIFA World Cup 2022 was also the first World Cup event to provide sensory rooms for people with autism. FIFA also ensured that all the stadiums and venues were accessible to fans with physical disabilities. Additionally, dedicated tickets were set aside for people with disabilities. Today, we look back on accessibility at the FIFA World Cup 2022. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to the Pulse on AMI Audio. I'm Jyothi Gupta joining you from the Accessible Media Studios in Toronto. My hair is pulled back in a bun. I'm wearing a pair of headphones, they're black over the ear headphones, and I'm in a white I'm in a uh, t-shirt or a blouse that has 3/4 length sleeves, a square neck, and is red and black striped. I often find it intriguing when people talk about uh, the legacy that large-scale sporting events will leave behind. we often hear that you know if we have uh the opportunity to host such and such a games or such and such a big event we're going to end up with improved transit improved housing improved amenities in the host city and most importantly for the purposes of our conversation improved accessibility in the city that plays host to uh whether it's the olympics or the world cup and so what often happens is when we have these big sporting events we talk about them and then we forget about them but i wanted to look back on the fifa world cup 2022 the first held in the arab world and check in with somebody in qatar to find out how things are a year from when the world cup was held it's been about 10 months now since the fifa world cup took place and i'm delighted to welcome ahmed habib who's an accessibility expert consultant and activist who's joining us today from qatar hello and welcome thank you so much for taking some time to speak to me on the pulse today hi jovita thank you for having me tell me about what life was like for people with disabilities in qatar before the world cup was announced was accessibility a priority or was it something that had fallen behind and having spent most of my life uh, in toronto um i uh, was able to come to qatar long before the world cup was uh, meant to happen to work on accessibility and uh, despite of course varying degrees of success with creating accessible spaces between canada and qatar i saw that many of the same issues that faced disabled people are universal and they fundamentally lie in the way disabled people are viewed in society still to a large extent people in workplaces educational spaces and uh, public offices throughout the world whether it's Canada or here prescribe to a medical model of disabled people seeing them as being you know incomplete or invalid or incapable uh, whereas they need to be looking at disability from a social model that places the onus of the disability on an inaccessible society therefore saying that when a society is accessible 
someone's disability no longer has um, uh, that much of a bearing on their ability to live an independent life. But that was definitely the case wherever I traveled, whether it's in my native Iraq or here in Qatar or uh, Toronto, or, you know, a place that I uh, that I call home as well. Um, having said that, um, throughout the world, there is an increasing amount of awareness um, around disability. This, of course, has translated to very differing uh, things for people depending on where they live, depending on what kind of resources are available, depending on what kind of buy-in there are there is from uh, uh, the government and, and public services and even to a large extent uh, private sector employers, etc. Uh, so when I did come to Qatar, I was able to work with a very talented group of, of, of young people to establish an assistive technology center. It was the first of its kind in the region. We were, where, we were, where we were able to help out hundreds of disabled people by providing them with the tools, training, and uh, and support necessary uh, to get connected to the digital world. Something that we really firmly uh, believe in. Um, you op- you know you opened up the show um, with the legacy of sporting events, and just like anything else, that also varies from one city to another, and. You know, some cities have been able to maybe leverage the event more than others. At the end of the day, we're speaking about large events that are in need of tremendous public funding that divert public funding to them. So the legacy aspect is actually much, much more important than the actual event itself. At the end of the day, it's either a, you know a sporting event or a football tournament. But what really matters is, you know, how has this event been? used by public funding, uh, keeping in mind, of course, there's going to be very, very profitable corporate sponsors as well. How is all that uh, coming together to bring about a positive legacy to the people that live in the city or that will continue uh, to visit it in the future? Um, You know, as you mentioned in the beginning, the World Cup in Qatar featured a lot of really important accessibility features for the tournament itself. But I think more importantly, the real legacy that will be left behind will be the fundamental shift that we're beginning to see across the world, particularly the Arab world, with regards to moving away from the medical model towards the social model of disability. So all in all, um, my experience as a, as a disabled person varies from day to day, depending on the level of public service that I'm receiving and, you know, my interactions with people in society, but without a doubt, um, uh, you know, things are moving um, throughout the Arab world in terms of increased awareness around the issue of disability. But it's not to say that, uh, you know, there's a need to be over-celebratory because there's still a lot, a lot of work to be done, much like there is a lot of work to be done in a city like Toronto, which to this day in 2024 almost, that the public transport system is not entirely accessible, for example. Yes. Whereas here in Doha it is. Yes, that's right. Uh, wh- how did you get involved with um, the FIFA World Cup uh, and the organizing efforts? Was it that you were interested in accessibility uh, that led you to this opportunity? Or are you just a big football fan and this was your way of getting involved? Yeah, it's actually you know, all of the above. Um, my uh, previous experience as a uh, policy expert in accessibility here, working with assistive technology for over a decade, obviously, you know, allowed me 
to be able to support accessibility efforts at the World Cup. I've also done work with companies like Netflix and others to make sure that their content or new content that's being developed is also in line with um, the social model, portraying people with disabilities in a positive, empowered light and stepping away from the cliche um, portrayals of disabled people, whether they're seen as superheroes or super angelic uh, or one or the other, creating flawed characters that, you know, that, that, that are the linchpin of the story as opposed to something that or someone rather that, that exists on the periphery of the plot. So that experience I had, but in addition to that, I also work um, in the field of media production. I uh, create films and write press releases and create digital content. And it was that role actually that brought me into the World Cup. Uh, my primary role was to create awareness content and write press releases. Uh, and, but obviously, me being a disabled person myself and my previous experience and accessibility um, allowed me to also work on uh, on the accessibility front as well. Now, you said earlier, and I loved the, the recognition that what these games leave behind hopefully is a legacy uh, where you have a shift or a change in attitudes and perceptions for people with disabilities. And I think that is the really important takeaway. But just so that we understand, because a lot of us weren't able to make it to Doha and we weren't able to make it to see the games in person, we've just heard about how these games were supposed to be one of the more accessible uh, World Cup events out there. What were some of the ways in which the games were disability inclusive and accessible? One of the coolest things and the first things that was done, you know, to ensure greater accessibility at the World Cup was to establish something called the Accessibility Forum that brought together disabled people and the organizations that uh, represent them, experts in the field, uh, large uh, public service providers like the Public Transit Network and other public spaces in the country brought them together in a forum that met regularly that identified needs that went beyond the tournament in the country because the idea was to create a seamless user journey for any disabled person that was coming to watch matches but also have the ability to obviously enjoy what the city has to offer and and make use of um, all the transportation options that were available as well. You know, it's obviously the adage that we know from the United Nations Convention on the rights of people with disabilities is nothing about us without us. And that was something that was really fundamental to the planning and the work that went into the tournament. Um, this translated into creating a fundamental change in uh, a very small a country where we now have the entire public transportation system accessible, you know, greater, greater um, uh, availability of uh, accessible bathrooms and public spaces, curb cuts, um, all of the stuff that was required. If someone is uh, blind, they'll have tactile floor indicators and in all the subway stations, and 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 we really saw that that, that ripple effect was happening throughout um, the city. And that was as a result of disabled people saying, hey, listen, you know, the tournament's great, but what we really want to make sure is that accessibility is addressed on all fronts and not just what's gonna happen in and around stadiums. So that was something that was phenomenal. In addition to that, during the actual games, um, like you mentioned earlier, um, there were sensory rooms provided for neurodivergent kids. That was, that was at 
three um, of the eight stadiums that enabled people, for example, um, who um, are on the um, autistic spectrum to enjoy the match from a quieter place, should they choose so. They can be in a room that's outfitted with technology and staffed with people that know how to use the technology and all those tickets were available at a price that was not discriminatory, but in fact, um, at the cheapest prices that were available um, in the stadium. In addition to that, um, and there was audio descriptive commentary for blind fans for the first time in the Arabic language. In order to, in order to deliver the commentary, there was approximately two years of building local capacities to, to train um, uh, commentators and uh, uh, making sure that their work is audio descriptive in the Arabic language. That was done with a local university here as well. And um, this creates obviously a, you know, a pool of commentators that are available to do audio description for future events. But again, not only within the sports realm, this also includes, you know, conferences, exhibitions, art spaces, museums, uh, and other um, spaces as well. Um, and there was work that was done with the deaf community to create um, content around the tournament in Arabic sign language. Um, uh, you know, the deaf community in the Arab world, much like other places in the world, suffers tremendously from marginalization from the educational system. So there's a large number of uh, deaf people that um, have difficulty reading or writing and still rely on um, uh, sign language to communicate. So that was a concerted effort that uh, that was made as well. And the idea was that, you know, disabled people have, will have the right to enjoy, um, you know, football. I mean, seeing fans that, you know, are obsessed with the sport, as you may know, um, you know, I mean, I know a lot of our listeners in Canada, football or soccer might not be the, 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 their number one sport, but you can imagine around the world, fans that were coming in from Argentina and, uh, and Mexico and Senegal and Cameroon and, Korea and Japan and, uh, you know, all these different places were um, obsessed with the, the, the game and were able to enjoy it uh, just like everyone else. And at the end of the day, there was an accessible infrastructure that was left and there was, um, uh, you know, a lot of training and awareness building and capacity building in the field as well. Was there a single moment that stands out for you as being particularly memorable? Maybe something that happened during a match or something that happened before or after a match? If you think back on your experience, what is the one moment that really is a fond memory for you? Well, I mean, um, just before the tournament, I received a message on the World Cup Instagram from a mother in Denmark. Um, um, her and her son were planning to come and watch Portugal and and Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, the, the son is um, a wheelchair user. They've never traveled to this part of the world with a wheelchair before, and they were obviously concerned about, you know, how it is they'll be able to get a wheelchair accessible taxi at the airport and the hotels, etc. And I was able to reassure them, you know, uh, reinforce the message that everything was in place that. When they arrived, I was also able to get them um, tickets to a Portugal match, which they, which they didn't have. And uh, most importantly, we were able to sneak in and meet and greet between Noah and Ronaldo as well, which of course was a really huge moment for the, for the young man. So seeing that kind of impact, but ultimately, to be honest, 
uh, Jolita, what really made this World Cup different to other ones is that for the first time, uh, millions and millions of people from the so-called Middle East, the Arab world, South Asia were able to watch matches for the first time because of its geographic location, the way it was accessible, and its uh, its general overall uh, um, you know uh, proximity to people. So it was just uh, it was a really lovely experience. Yes, and you know uh, because I lived in India, if you wanted to watch matches, you'd have to get up at all hours of the night, even if you're watching them on TV. At least this way, you know, you were watching matches at a, at a reasonable time of day, uh, even if you were watching them from home, if you lived in, in Asia or if you lived, um, you know, in, in the Middle East. Uh, one other question to ask you, and this might be a slightly controversial question, but, you know, these games, any big games, we talk about the Olympics running, uh, you know, over budget and, and um, the FIFA World Cup 2022 cost a lot of money, $222 billion is what the final estimate is supposed to be. When you think about the legacy that they leave behind in terms of access, uh, and bearing in mind that likely in order to host the games, uh, a large amount of public money was diverted from other projects and other things that could that might have also been desperately needed. Do you think it was worth it? Well, I mean, I think that that's a question that's not universal. I think it differs from country to country. Do I think it's worth it, for example, for... Toronto, a city that's having a public funding crisis that has, um, you know, a decaying public transportation system. There's, you know, um, an, an epidemic of unhoused people in the city, etc. Do I think it's it's apt for public funds to be diverted into the games there? You know, my my initial response would be no. Um, in addition to that, do I would I wish that. Um, accessibility was uh, worked on without the need to host games. Um, obviously, you know, that, that that's been the basics. But I think, you know, this was a World Cup that was for the region. I'm not really privy to how much it cost. I do know, of course, that, you know, there were a lot of questions that were raised about workers' welfare, about the amount of money that was spent on the tournament. And I think those were all important questions. And I think that this World Cup was able to, you know, bring these discussions to the floor. And um, I think um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, disabled people now um, need to make sure that we continue to be advocates. We need to make sure that we continue, you know, uh, to, to work on the legacy that was created. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, all this legacy can, uh, can go away if it's not, uh, you know, created or not turned into a sort of momentum that can increase accessibility and in, uh, in throughout the Arab world. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that you had, uh, along with a group of friends, set up Qatar's first accessibility technology center. Tell me a little bit more about that and some of the work that you're doing. Yeah, in 2010, we set up a center called MEDA, M-A-D-A, which means horizon in uh, in Arabic. And uh, it's an assistive technology center where people with disabilities or disabled people can come, get assessed, get provided technology and get trained on that technology. This includes, you know, braille note takers to adaptive mouses. Um, our focus was primarily on ICP. And in addition to that, um, we set up the region's first accessibility national policy, which means that all major public sector websites have to be accessible in the world um, accessibility guidelines. Um, uh, we also, um, you know, work 
China C to develop Arabic language solutions that were not available before. And many of them were available only in in the English language. Um, the, you know, the, the impact of the work that's been done over the last decade by a small center like Meta is really immeasurable because we're seeing more and more types of centers like that pop up across the region. And I hope that it was uh, it was it was a butterfly effect that that we started. That's really fantastic. And do you find that a lot of government government websites and uh, I mean a lot of forms and all now everything has to be done on the internet. Everything's done online. How accessible are some of those digital resources in a place like Qatar? Because in Canada, most things are pretty inaccessible. <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it varies again from organization to organization. I think maybe the public sector does a little bit of a better job at it than the private sector. I think you know what we know as people that work or as experts in policy making or anything related um, to um, improving the ability of everyone to access content, spaces, experiences, uh, is that regulation and policies at the heart of this. And, you know, you know, I always, I always um, use this example which is in North America, in Toronto in particular, most fast food chains will be really, really accessible. And in fact, their accessibility will form, you know, a core pillar in their PR or in their marketing. But when those same uh, restaurants open abroad in uh, environments where they're not legally bound to be accessible, they don't seem to be accessible at all. So I think it's really important to recognize that accessibility is not a right that um, it's not like an apple that fell off a tree. It's something that disabled people had to work hard for, they had to fight for. Um, it's you know, it's it's, it's because uh, people are, at times you know uh, dedicated their entire lives to ensuring that disabled people have the ability to access workplaces and education and social and political spaces. So yeah, when it comes to digital accessibility, unfortunately, a lot of it is falling wayward because uh, the lack of um, buy-in at the policy level and um, yeah, it's definitely something that used to be worked on. As you can imagine, digital content is at the heart of the way we interact with each other um, today, digital content experiences and uh, not to um, make sure that uh, these spaces uh, are accessible is a fundamentally discriminatory thing against uh, a large portion of the population. You know, I uh, my husband referred me to you. He said, you should talk to my friend Ahmed. He's an, a fantastic poet. And I said, really? I had no idea. So I was uh, really excited to learn that you also write poetry. When and how did you get to writing poetry? And what do you normally write about? And, and Toronto, uh, you know, around the war on Iraq, as, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people took to the streets to protest the war, you know, a big part of this resistance was cultural, you know, artists from all over the world and um, came together and, and to, you know, write music or create music or poetry or literature or dance or whatever art form um, uh, that they um, were able to excel in to speak up against war and injustice and racism uh, wherever it may be. And that definitely is something that spoke uh, to me. And um, I got involved in, um, in writing some poetry and uh, I was able to perform it. Uh, I was part of a, you know, a, a, a young crew of spoken uh, word artists that were tutored by a, a legendary poet in Toronto called Spin. Shout out to Spin. And um, yeah, that's where it all started. Oh, amazing. Are you still writing poetry now? Um, my writing has evolved now to also include some prose that... Uh, 
I most recently wrote a um, very long text about um, the elusiveness of home and what home means as a refugee myself that uh, uh, had to leave uh, Iraq um, as someone who is in solidarity with displaced ethnically cleansed and um, uh, people living or being forced to live at the margins of society. Um, I really wanted to make sure that I can write about this experience of what home is and, and where home can be. And, you know, this conversation with you right now, even though I only um, uh, had the, the honor to be here a few minutes ago, feels like home almost as well. So it's not something that uh, is physical or sensory. It can be something much deeper, yet even at times uh, very fleeting as well. I would be uh, I would be uh, I would be remiss in my in my in my duties as a host if I didn't ask you to uh, read a short excerpt either from a, a poem of your choosing or if you wanted to read some of your prose uh, some of your recent work uh, the floor is yours please go right ahead uh, one of the um, first poems that I wrote um, was called who knew and uh, the poem um, is quite long but I read the ending as opposed to the uh, uh, to the beginning where I say, uh, who knew that the sky can turn pink and the sun can sink into the earth where things of the greatest worth give birth to every verse that I disperse and find myself inside it emerged. And who knew that the soul I left in Baghdad I would search for in zigzags and body bags would be a gift to my people. Our souls are not so feeble that with every evil achiever there is born a believer who through words conceive a can conceive a Biba Iraq, and now that the birds are back, I think I saw a dove with the whole weight of the world on its back. Yeah, that was that was one of the poems that I that I wrote earlier. That's amazing. Where can we find some of your work? I mean, do you have a website, uh, obviously for for Meta, but also just a website or a blog where we can keep track of some of your writings because you are a phenomenal poet, just based on that little excerpt there. Oh, that's very kind of you, Joita. And um, you can just follow me on Twitter. My first and last name, I share a lot of my writings there. And then if I do write something a bit more long form, I'll definitely put a uh, put a link out there as well. And what is your Twitter handle? It's my first and last name, Ahmed Habib, A-H-M-E-D-H-A-B-I-B. Thank you very much, Ahmed. We'll put that in the description down below. And I hope a lot of you will follow along. It was such a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your impressions. Yeah, likewise, Joita. And thank you for hosting the show and uh um, I really appreciate uh, the invitation and more importantly, the opportunity to meet you. Ahmed Habib is an accessibility ex expert, advocate and a poet. And you can obviously follow him on Twitter at Ahmed Habib. We'll put the Twitter link down below so you can go ahead and follow Ahmed on there. If you'd like to find out more about Meta and if you'd like to read some of his uh, poetry and other writings as well. We are really out of time, folks. We've got to run, but I hope you'll remember to subscribe to this channel so you are notified about future videos. You can write to us at feedback at ami.ca with any comments or feedback. You can also give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. And don't forget to leave your permission to play the audio on the program. You can find this show on Twitter at AMI Audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. And if you'd like to look me up on Twitter, I'm at Juita Gupta. Our videographer today has been Matthew McGurk. Marco Flalo is technical producer for the show. Ryan Delahanty is coordinator for AMI Audio Podcasts. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. And I've been your host, Joyita Gupta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>